Hi, I'm Veronica, and I'm your sleep guide tonight. Let's begin by taking a deep breath, and then another. As we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tenseness that you have in your limbs. Lastly, let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. Deep, deep, deep. One more breath and we're ready to begin. I have been staying in this house for some time now. I grew up here, so I know every nook and cranny. My parents moved out a while ago, leaving me here to take care of the place, I assume. They didn't say anything to me. They just packed their stuff and left. I guess they rented out from time to time, as I've seen so many people come and go. Some were cool, some were assholes, but all in all, it hasn't been that bad. I stay in the attic. I turned it into a bedroom a while back. It's a little crumpled, but how much space does a guy like me really need? Sometimes when I'm bored, I like to sit up there and reflect on some of the people I've come in contact with during their stay here. Like the businessman, Mr. Reynolds. He was cool. Mid-30s, ladies' man. Kept this place looking sharp for the ladies, of course. He was always talking to some Chinese-looking guy on what he called his laptop. I really don't know what that is. Then one day, he just disappeared. Some people came and took his stuff shortly after that. I wonder whatever happened to him. Anyway, then there were what I like to call, for lack of a better term, the high guys, two stoner buddies that like to sit around all day, drink beer, play video games, and get stoned. Who am I to judge anyone? Teach their own, I always say. But they trash this place. I can't have that. I tried everything I could to get them out of here, but they were so high most of the time they thought I was a hallucination and laughed it off. I stayed in my room the day the cops came to the house and took them away. Who's laughing now? There's been many families move in and out. None of them really stay too long. Moms and dads with a couple of kids, sometimes just mom and kids, sometimes just dad. Aside from a few screaming matches and the sounds of lovemaking on occasion, we all seem to pretty well get along. I really enjoy playing with the kids though. They're so much fun playing hide and seek, duck, duck, goose, games like that. It made me feel alive. I really miss those kids. But now there's Susan. She moved in about six months ago. Susan is amazing. She's single with no kids, though she does have a cat, Oscar. Oscar doesn't like me at all. Every time I I come into the room, he stands up, curls his back, and hisses at me like he's ready to attack. I don't want any trouble, so I just leave Oscar alone. Susan goes to work early every morning and doesn't return till late at night. 
sometimes after dark. I don't know exactly what she does for a living, but I'm sure I will find out eventually. She spends most of her days off just watching Hallmark movies and eating lots of ice cream. I don't understand why, but as pretty as she is, she can do whatever she likes. Susan's about five feet four inches, late 20s, maybe early 30s, with beautiful long brown hair, these amazing green eyes, and a voice like an angel. Susan may be the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in a long time, but her housekeeping skills leave a lot to be desired. It's not that she's a slob or anything. It's just that she doesn't clean up after herself very well. So on occasion, while she's at work, just to help out, I will pick up the cups and dishes from around the house and put them in the sink. Pick up her clothes. I don't know what kind of perfume she uses, but it does smell good. Anyway, I will pick up her clothes on the hamper, sweep the floor, turn the lights out, things like that. Nothing really major, just the basics. It always makes me happy to see the smile on her face when she comes home and sees the house is straightened up. She just stands there smiling as she always says, thank you. Anything for you, Susan. Anything. I'm so taken by Susan that sometimes at night, I like to go stand at her bedroom door and just watch her sleep. She looks so peaceful. I would like nothing more than to lay beside her with my arms around her waist and just hold her. Maybe someday. I know it's only been a little while, but I think I'm falling in love with her. I want to tell her how I feel. I want to show her. I think I'll do it tonight when she gets home. What's that? Some kind of folder on the table. HPRC. Hamilton Paranormal Research Center. Case file number 137. Paranormal? I've never seen this before. She must have left it behind when she left for work today. I'll just take a peek. Hey, that's a picture of Susan. What does it say underneath lead investigator? Wow, sounds important. Here's a letter. I can barely read the writing. I hereby give my permission to any member of the HPRC to live in my residence for the sole purpose of obtaining evidence of paranormal activity within and assist in removal of said activity. Hmm? I can't read the signature, but there's that word again. There's more. A newspaper clipping from 1974. What does it say? Yesterday, the only son, Michael, age 17, of respected banker William Bernard and his family, Emily, was found dead in an apartment, accidental fall from the attic door to the hallway below. The cause of death was a broken neck. The incident occurred in their home located at 19 Chestnut Street. Wait, Michael Bernard? That's my name, and that's my address. Those are my parents. What? I'm dead? I can't be dead. I can see. I can feel. I can touch. I remember the fall. I remember getting up. I remember my mother coming up the stairs crying because I fell. Wait. She wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the dead me on the floor. I remember now. The two men in suits coming over and taking my body away. 
all my relatives coming over a few days later dressed in black crying, talking about I was too young to go. Go where? I didn't understand it then. I didn't go anywhere. I understand now. I'm a ghost. That explains everything. Why Mr. Reynolds never answered me when I talked to him. He couldn't see me. He couldn't hear me. Why the stoners thought I was a hallucination. Because in their altered state of mind, they could see me. Just thought they were imagining it. Why the parents of the children would always ask their kids, who are you talking to? Then scream at me to leave their kids alone. They couldn't see me either. That's why her cat hates me. It's why my parents just up and left one day. I thought they left me the house. Come to think of it, I haven't seen them in years. And why Susan was always smiling when I cleaned up. It wasn't because I did it. She was looking for evidence of my existence. She wants to get rid of me. I don't want to leave. I like it here. This is my house. I'm not leaving without a fight. She wants evidence. I'll give her evidence. I really loved her. I helped her. I even tolerated her damn cat. Well, screw all that. I've been nice so far, but after this, no more Mr. Nice Guy. She should be home soon. I'll wait right here so when she comes through the door, game on. What you're about to hear is a dramatized audio translation of the events that occurred at 19 Chestnut Street, July 25th, 2018, starting at approximately 9.08 p.m. and ending at approximately 9.27 p.m. This translation was taken from the video surveillance cameras and audio microphones placed in the living room area, kitchen, upstairs hallway, and master bedroom of the home. Translation goes as follows. 9.08 p.m. Susan Meyer, former lead investigator for the Hamilton Paranormal Research Center, arrives at the home and enters through the front door. 9.09. A small manila folder sitting on the coffee table begins to shake and eventually takes flight in the direction of Mrs. Meyer striking her between the eyes, causing a small cut in her skin and tiny droplets of blood to flow down her face. 9.10. A large curio cabinet to her right seems to move out by itself and about three inches from the wall, crashes to the floor in front of her, pinning her between it and the floor, at which time Mrs. Meyer screams, Michael, why are you doing this? 9-11. A humming sound is heard. The volume intensifies and forms into what appears to be a voice saying, this is my house. 9-12. All lights under surveillance start turning on and off by themselves, doors opening and closing repeatedly. The front door opens so hard that it strikes Mrs. Meyer in the back, knocking her over the broken cabinet and onto the floor, dropping her purse in the process. What appears to be a strong gust of wind blows through the living room area, so hard that it knocks over a table lamp and several knickknacks off the shelves, sending them crashing to the floor below. 9.15. From the floor, Mrs. Meyer screams, Michael, stop. I know this is your house. I know. Stop. 9.16. A small cat enters the frame from the bottom left corner of the screen 
and immediately flies backward off the screen, the sound of it hitting the wall and scurrying away is heard soon after. 9.18. All activities stop. Mrs. Meyer stands grabbing my purse and says, Michael, listen to me. I know you're mad. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay. I quit my job today to be with you. I want to be with you here in this house. 9.21. What appears to be a large mass of black fog appears on camera forming into what looks like a person. 9.22. Staring directly into the fog, Mrs. Meyer says, Michael, I can finally see you. I love you. I love everything you do for me. And now we'll always be together. 9.24. Reaching into her purse, Mrs. Meyer produces a small handgun and places it to her temple. 9.25. All video surveillance cameras shut down and lose signal. Only audio remains. 9.26. One single gunshot is heard, then the sound of something heavy hitting the floor. 9.27. All transmissions are lost. The body of Susan Meyer was found dead after a neighbor called 911 to report what sounded like a gunshot. Officers arrived on the scene to find the house in disarray and Mrs. Meyer's bloody corpse lying on the floor in the living room area, the victim of an apparent suicide. The body was taken to the county morgue where the cause of death was confirmed. The results for case number 137 are as follows. The home is believed to be completely consumed by a malevolent evil spirit. Any further investigation may result in injury and or death of another member of this organization. I will not take that risk. Case number 137 is now closed and will never be spoken of again. My condolences to the Meyer family. Thank you for your time. David Weinhart, Director of Operations, HPRC. My Parents' Haunted House. This is the first time I'm posting anything online about this. I'm a 31-year-old woman, married, and recently moved back in with my parents due to moving back to the town I grew up. My husband and I are taking our time looking for our own place due to wanting something nice in the area that is usually hard to find. This story takes place in my parents' house starting back 10 years ago. A description of the house for a bit of context is a two-story brick stone house and city limits, but still surrounded by nothing but woods. You have to go through a garage at least into the kitchen with the first bedroom to your left. Past the kitchen is the main living room and to the right is the hall that is very open. In this area, you will find the main dining room and second living area, but if you continue straight, you will see the staircase to your left and even further straight is my parents' bedroom and bathroom. Going up the stairs, you will come to the third living area. Yes, this is a huge house with two sets of French doors side by side that lead outside to the balcony. Going straight, there's a sharp left that leads you to the other three bedrooms and two bathrooms. This is where the story takes place. The first time I stepped foot into this house, I immediately felt off, like something just wasn't right. I felt a presence, but I didn't know what or who it was. 
I brushed it off thinking I was just reading too much into it. I continued to fill this for the next couple of years, and because of this, I didn't much enjoy visiting them. My parents liked to gamble a lot back then, so they would ask me to babysit my baby brother and sister one day on the weekend. My boyfriend, now husband, loved them, so he would always babysit with me. The first few times, I really didn't pay attention to the feeling I would get because we would be busy playing or eating with the kids. After that, things kind of chilled out and we would end up watching movies until it was time for us to go to bed. Now, my husband is a freak of nature. It's like he falls asleep the second his eyes are closed. Me, on the other hand, takes forever to get comfortable to wind down my mind. I also don't sleep well even when I finally do get to sleep. This night was the first time I saw and heard something in this brand new house. In this room, the bed is facing the doorway, but not directly in front of it. With the double doors open, you can see the front of the staircase and all the way down the hallway. As long as the light is on, that is. This night, only one of the hallway lights were on. I was laying in bed with the TV on, but the volume down low so I could hear if one of the kids called me. I was almost asleep when I heard one of my siblings coming down the stairs. I opened my eyes a bit and waited for them to get to the bottom, but they never did. I didn't think anything of it. I closed my eyes and began to drift off again. A few minutes later, I hear it again. So I open my eyes and wait, but again, they never get to the bottom. This time I sit up, listen, a bit spooked, but nothing I can't handle. I get a bit nervous, but still I go to check and see if they are there and maybe they're scared to come all the way down. No one is there. Confused and thinking I must be dreaming it up, I go back to bed, this time closing one of the double doors. It was a few hours later, around 2.30 a.m., when I feel like someone is very near me, as if they're standing next to the bed right in front of me. Usually when I open my eyes, I would see the green glow of the alarm clock on the bedside table, but this time I saw nothing. It was pitch black. I couldn't even see the hallway light on and the TV had turned off and on its own. I felt like I couldn't move. I was awake now and scared to my bones. I was finally able to call out to my husband loud enough to wake him. He reached over and turned on the light. And right then, the scared feeling went away, and I was able to move again. I freaked out and started crying. I couldn't even begin to explain to him what happened, because even if I had, he didn't believe in those things. So I told him I was having a nightmare and asked him to go check on the kids. When he came back, he said the kids were fine, got back in the bed. With the light on, I was able to fall asleep, but it took me forever. The next day, I told my mom about what happened, and that's when she told me. She had been hearing footsteps on the stairs at night and even saw someone standing by the door at times. She didn't tell anyone because she didn't want to scare the kids. This is when she had told me what she had done. She wanted to know what was going on in her house, so she went and bought a voice recorder. One day she decided to use it and went up the stairs while everyone was gone. She asked your typical questions of, who is here, what do you want, and why are you here? And then said, you have passed away and need to go into the light. You are not welcome here. 
The next day, she decided to leave the recorder in one of the bedrooms upstairs while it was recording for about four hours while she was out running errands. I asked if she had checked it, and to my surprise, she said she was too afraid to listen to it alone. I wanted to listen to it. Off we went to the computer and began listening to it after it was uploaded. During the four hours she was gone, you could hear something clicking or tapping. Sounds of a drawer opening and closing, but we weren't for sure. Then we listened to the part where she was asking questions. Now you could hear a sound that resembles a fan or maybe static throughout the whole thing. So some sounds were indistinguishable. But the one we did hear chilled us to the core. When she asked, what do you want? It gave us an answer. The answer was Jamie. It didn't answer any other questions except for that one. I cried immediately. He wasn't having night terrors for no reason. Something was there for him every night. We soon asked a friend to cleanse the house. For a long time, everything had been okay. My brother stopped having night terrors. My mom was able to sleep comfortably and all was good again. Until now. I've been living in this house for a month and a half. For the last three weeks, I've been seeing things everywhere, especially when I'm alone. Because of this, I won't stay alone anymore. I get this strong feeling of being watched. I had the feeling of someone pulling on my blanket at night. I think it's time for another cleanse. Oh, and just an FYI, I am the third generation in my mother's side of the family that is able to see spirits. My dad's side of the family has in the past, before I was born, practiced black magic. I don't like speaking stuff to them, and I won't dabble in any of the spiritual stuff most people do. I stay as far away from it as possible, and I recommend that you do too. Even if you're careful, these spirits can haunt for a long time, even after you are gone. Update. So I'm sitting in the living room floor playing with my nephew. Mom's on the left couch and sister's on the right couch. My nephew has a toy piano that is made of cloth and can be folded up. This piano is behind us in the corner with all my nephew's other toys. We are talking and watching my nephew attempt to walk when this piano makes a sound. It's like someone is pressing the keys slowly. We stop and stare and then look at each other shocked when the keys are pressed rapidly until it finally shuts off on its own. Mom and I are not scared. My sister is terrified due to something happening to her last night around midnight. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories, and I hope you're fast asleep. Sweet dreams.
sleep guide tonight. Let's begin by taking a deep breath. And then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tenseness that you have in your limbs. And lastly, let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. Deep. 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 One more deep breath. And we're ready to begin. Roscoe, ever since I was a young boy, I've always been different, not psychotic, demonic, or anything like that, just not quite like the rest. I look different, I act different, I dress different, and I think different. This made it easy for the beautiful people of the world to mess with me, a lot. It used to bother me growing up, but as I've gotten older, not so much. Now I just look at the source and think, screw them, they'll be dead soon. I've never been too lucky with the ladies either. So after years of failed relationships, I found myself alone, friendless, and living in a 20-year-old trailer that I'm renting from a friend of a friend of a friend. It doesn't really matter who. Anyway, I thought to myself, I'm tired of being alone. I can probably get another girlfriend, but she just end up getting on my nerves, and then we'd break up. Same old song and dance. No. This time, I wanted a companion. Someone who is happy to see me when I come home from work. Someone who likes to go for walks. Someone to write shotgun in the car. Someone who will love me for who I am, not for what I have to offer them. I'm gonna get a dog. The very next day I got up, hopped in my car, and drove down to the local ASPCA to get myself a dog. I walked in, told the lady behind the desk what I was looking for. Nothing big, a small dog, a lap dog, so to speak. She said, sure, right this way. She took me into the kennel area and showed me many types of little dogs, many pinchers, chihuahuas, even a few Pomeranians. They were all lovely, but none of them really seemed to click with me. Then out of the corner of my eye, at the very end of the cages, all by itself, set a metal box. The box was fully closed, with a tiny barred window in the door resembling a prison cell. I said to the lady, what is that? She looked at me as if I wasn't supposed to ask and said, that's Roscoe. We're not really sure what kind of dog he is. He's been returned to us several times due to behavioral issues. He's scheduled to be put down later today. That's why he's in the box. I'd like to see him, I said. She said, I don't think that's a good idea. Starting to get annoyed, I said, the sign out front says all dogs ready for adoption. He's in here. He can be adopted. Now I want to see him. She said, yes, sir with a you're going to regret it tone and took me over to the box. 
unlocked the door, opened it, and then I saw him. This little guy looked rough. His brown fur was matted to his body, crusty pieces of I don't know what in the corners of his eyes, like he'd been crying. His nails were a bit long and sharp. His eyes were jet black with the slightest hint of red in them. To be quite honest, he looked like he had just crawled out of the sewer and smelled like it too. He had an odor that reminded me of the summers I spent helping my uncle at his funeral home. He smelled like death, but he was friendly. He ran out of the box, ran up to me and let me pick him up. He licked my face for what had been to be in at least 10 minutes. He was wagging his tail and just going crazy with excitement, and so was I. I told the lady, this little guy ain't dying today. Roscoe has a new home. A look of worry fell over her face. After filling out some paperwork and getting his dog license, I took Roscoe home. First on the agenda was a bath. He was rather calm in the bath, seeming to enjoy it. After that, I dried him off and brushed him out. I had to use one of my old brushes since I didn't have a dog brush. We went to the local pet store next. I won't mention the name of the place due to legal matters. I'll just say the people there are smart about pets. We got all the necessities needed to take care of my new friend. The drive home started out normal, just driving down the road. I've always been a cautious driver, always going the speed limit or below. Apparently, the guy in the car behind me didn't like it and sped up to pass me. Eventually, everyone does. He pulled alongside of me and yelled, get the hell out of the way, moron. Learn how to drive. Roscoe went crazy, barking and jumping at the dash as the guy passed, growling, showing all of his teeth, drooling and clawing the dash. The red tint in his eyes was becoming more apparent now. He began banging his head against the windshield in a crazed attempt to get at the guy, hitting it so hard it split his forehead open, blood running down his face on the windshield and the dash. Oh my God, what the hell is happening? Roscoe, calm down. Stop. Roscoe, stop. I finally had to pull on the side of the road. Roscoe was still frantic. I threw an old t-shirt over him so he couldn't see, grabbed him, telling him it's okay over and over again. His body went limp. I thought he was dead. I pulled the shirt from over him, and the second I did, his eyes opened. He was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to play like nothing ever happened. What the hell? I took the shirt and held it over his forehead, stopping the blood. I washed him up fully when we got home, cleaning the dash and the windshield as well. We spent the rest of the day playing in the yard and hanging around the house so he could get used to his new home. The trailer park I live in isn't the best of places to live. The lot rent is cheap, but that's the only good thing about it. It's a dirt road in a U-shape with trailers running parallel with the road on both sides. This is apparently where the term trailer trash came from. It's not that the people are bad or anything. It's just cleanliness isn't their way of life. Old refrigerators, car parts, and various other piles of junk clutter their yards. The trailer at the end in front of the park had been raided a couple of times by local police, and there's always cars pulling in and out of there. I think they're selling drugs, but that's none of my business. In the middle of the park, there is what the park manager calls a playground. 
It consists of an old beat up swing set, a rickety metal slide, and a sandbox that most of the cats around here use as a litter box. Most of the older folks here just sit out there and talk all day. No kids ever play there, and who can blame them is a lawsuit waiting to happen. The night I realized Roscoe was the perfect friend for me came about two months later. That night, while taking him for a walk around the park before going to bed, we passed the old playground. Something told me not to cut through there, just complete the circle around the park and go home. But it was close to my house, and I was really tired. At the playground, there were two guys I'd never seen before in black hoodies just hanging out. One on the swing and the other on the slide. As I passed them, I heard the guy on the swing say, Nice dog, can I pet him? I said, sure. As one guy bent down to pet Roscoe, I heard the cocking of a gun and felt the barrel press hard against the back of my neck. Give me your freaking money or you're dead, the guy from the slide who now had a gun said. The other guy leaped up and grabbed me and slammed me against the slide, dropping the leash in the process. What happened next sent shivers down my spine and filled me with excitement at the same time. Roscoe went insane, his eyes turning bright red, skipping the growling and clawing part and went straight for the guy's neck. He leaped up from a sitting position and grabbed the guy's throat, digging his claws into the side of the neck and ripping out his voice box with his teeth. Blood spewed everywhere as the guy fell onto the ground, Roscoe still attached. The guy with the gun ran like a little bee. The guy on the ground was gasping for air, blood pouring out of his mouth and the hole in his throat as he choked on it. He tried to hit Roscoe to get him off, but my boy was relentless, biting and clawing at the guy's face, ripping and tearing his eyes out, part of his cheek and his entire nose down to the socket. Maybe I'm wrong for this, but I don't care. After years of being messed with by a-holes like this, it was great to finally get revenge. I started chanting Roscoe on, get him boy, get him, kill that piece of crap. And that's just what he did. As the guy took his last breath, Roscoe stepped back and fell over his body limp and lifeless, blood covering a snout with pieces of flesh and eyeballs hanging from his mouth. Two seconds later, he sprung back to life, happy and energetic, chewing on the eyeball pieces like a play toy. Good boy, Roscoe, I said as I picked him up, staring at the mutilated corpse that lay at my feet. Screw him. Let the cats eat the rest, I said. I carried Roscoe home, washed him off, and fed him the biggest steak I had. Raw, of course, just how he likes it. I had the best night's sleep that I've ever had, Roscoe right by my side. Homicide detectives and police flooded the park the day after, going door to door looking for witnesses. Mrs. Jacobson from three trailers down found the body. She had to be given oxygen and a ride in the ambulance to get checked out. It traumatized her so bad. I'm sorry, Mrs. Jacobson, I really am. When the cops came to my door, I, of course, saw nothing, and Roscoe was on his best behavior, laying on the living room floor pretending to be asleep. I watched the coroner carry the body away. The cops finished up and went away, and I asked my neighbor what happened. She said, some guy was mauled to death last night. The cops think it was some kind of wild animal that escaped from the circus that came through about a year ago and attacked a guy. 
There have been numerous bodies found in the area with wounds such as the ones they found today. They're writing it off as that. Roscoe and I couldn't be happier together. He has a loving home and I get to seek revenge. So if any of you a-holes from my past are reading this, I haven't forgotten. I will find you. I will get you. Well, Roscoe will. He's not a bad dog. He's just very protective. A Wendigo broke into my house. Before I begin, I'm a 16-year-old male. About three years ago, I was living in Virginia, visiting family over the summer. We were right outside the D.C. area and staying in a two-story house near the freeway. On the other side of the freeway was a forest. So my mom, her boyfriend, Eric, and I were all staying with Eric's parents. We had brought some night vision binoculars and decided that tonight was a perfect time to use them. So after dinner, we gear up and head out. We passed under the freeway and headed into the woods. When we get about five minutes into the forest, we sat down our bag and took out our binoculars. My mom looks around with them for a while, seeing a few squirrels here and there. She got tired of them and then passed them to me. I looked around for a while, being careful not to look at the freeway for fear of being blinded. I spot something behind a tree about 50 feet to our left. I concentrate on it, trying to figure out what it was. It looked like a pale, bald, anorexic man looking straight at us from behind the tree. I get a bit uneasy, but I'm hesitant to believe it's really there. I asked Eric to take a look just in case. To my despair, he sees it too. He describes it much the same way I did. Now, Eric is a former amateur boxer and I train MMA almost every day, but neither one of us wants to stick around with that thing. We start heading back to the house, crossing under the freeway. We take another look behind us as a car comes by. All three of us see glowing eyes lit up by the headlights on the other side of the freeway. We say, F that, and head back to the house. When we get back, Eric's parents are asleep, and my mom and Eric go upstairs to the guest room. There's only one guest room, so I have the couch downstairs. I'm a little too excited after seeing the thing in the woods, so I end up staying up all night. Around 3 a.m., I'm watching TV and start hearing footsteps above me. I immediately remember our earlier encounter and panic a little. I try to calm down and tell myself it's just one of the dogs or maybe someone who couldn't sleep. I keep hearing the footsteps for a while until I hear a doorknob jiggle. I find it weird that they're trying to unlock a locked door, but I try to ignore it. They stop walking around for a few more minutes and then it's quiet again. I stay up until the sun starts coming up and then I pass out. My mom wakes me up and I remember the footsteps from the night before. I describe what happened and she asks if one of them got up at any time. She says no, and I think it must have been one of the dogs. That is until she tells me the room above me is the office. No one was in the office and the door stays locked at night. My heart sinks as I piece it all together. I don't know if it was that thing for sure, but I think it was. I've done a lot of research since then trying to figure out what that thing was that night. I found two creatures that seemed to match it. 
I think it was either a skinwalker or Wendigo. Whichever one it was, I'm just thankful that the door is locked. I know that I wouldn't be able to fight that thing, no matter how tough I am. Something in the woods. I guess I'll start with the background. I'm a 33-year-old female, but the story takes place when I was a teenager living in a suburb of Chicago. The village I lived in was quiet and middle class. We lived like a mile from the police station, and the worst crimes we had was a murder or two and robberies, once in a blue moon. 99% of the time, boring and more boring. Unless you had a car, you were stuck just walking around the park at night with your friends. Anyway, one night my girlfriend and I decided to go hang out at a park with some guys at like 12 a.m. The night was a bit windy and we had a full moon. I even got a kiss that night from the boy I liked, but the night wasn't just fun and hanging out late. There was a deep forest in the park with a stream and a playground right next to it. The same playground that we went to with swings and jungle gem and columns. There's two bridges, one of wood, the one everyone uses, and one bridge made of rocks that's rarely ever used because it's deeper in the forest. Over the stream connecting the two halves of the forest park area. I'll get to the rock bridge in a minute. We hung around on the swings and chatted and just spent the evening together. I'm sitting and just looking around, talking, enjoying the peace and quiet in the moonlight. I have a full view of the forest and the dip of earth that I know leads to the stream. When I see something moving over that dip of earth, some dark shape, it looked like it was crawling out of the forest. An arm, then another arm. It pulls itself out of the ditch stream. A figure darker than that surrounding the forest and I'm sitting there frozen. I think I'm seeing things. It just kind of lays there on the ground and doesn't move. A flash of fear grips me. What if it comes this way? I look to my friends and no one notices anything. I look back and it's gone. Did it go back or go somewhere else? I really want to get out of there. Then one friend asks, did you guys hear about the urban legend of the rock bridge over the stream? Apparently some kids or something played on the bridge and fell over and died. What a thing to say after what I saw. But I didn't ask anyone anything and just pretended I didn't see anything. The experience stuck with me. I never talked about it because it must have really been my imagination. Things like that happen only in scary movies, right? But I rarely went to that park after that. And Black Thing, if you're real, I hope we never meet again. Who knows what would have happened if you saw me the same time I saw you. A true skinwalker sighting. To start this story off and to give a little insight about me, I am an 18-year-old female who grew up in Michigan. I've lived in the country for as long as I can remember. And for heads up, this is a long story, so bear with me. On one particular hot summer weekend, me and a couple of friends, including my boyfriend, let's call him Tony, and my older brother, let's call him Brad, decided we were going to go camping for the weekend since it was such a nice warm week. Tony's parents had owned a cabin way out in Ludington, 
surrounded by a huge wooded area with a personal lake and no neighbors for at least four miles. But being stupid teenagers, we didn't really think about that. All we were ready for was a party like normal teens would. Well, after being there for two hours, our fun had started. Tony's friends had brought lots of alcohol and weed to last us for the weekend so we wouldn't be bored since we had no service and only movies to watch. After it got around 12 a.m. and was pitch black, we had a huge bonfire going. It was a total of six people, including me and Tony. As we talked and laughed about upcoming events in our lives, we were so distracted that we didn't notice that my brother had literally frozen his eyes on one section of the woods. Mind you, we were all intoxicated and high at the time. Eventually, our talk ceased when Tony realized his friend and my brother had an emotionless expression. Hey, dude, you all right? He asked Brad. Silence. Brad didn't reply or even make any movements that would indicate that we heard him. After that, I started to get scared as well as the other two girls there. It took a lot for my brother to act that way. Eventually, I was the first to catch on that he was excessively staring into a certain part of the woods. I turned my head and followed his gaze the best I could, and when I finally caught on to what he was staring at, my heart dropped. There, right effing there, was, at first look, a dog. At least that's what I thought. It was some person's dog that wandered off. But then my brain kicked in and I realized that there wasn't neighbors for miles, so how could there be a dog? My mind started to race while Tony still tried to get Brad to speak up or even move. In one motion, this thing stood up tall. When I say tall, I mean effing gigantic. It had to be at least six feet tall. Everyone saw it then. How could you not? The other two girls and the other boy with us gasped as they finally grasped why my brother was as still as a stick. No one moved for what seemed like hours. Tony was the first to talk. No tell, he mumbled. No one heard what he said but Brad, and I swear to you when I say his eyes were as big as pan saucers. That freaked me out immediately. What did you say? One of the girls asked. It has no effing tell, he hissed at her. My heartbeat stopped. He was right. There was no tell on this thing. Suddenly, my clouded alcohol mind cleared up a fraction when I finally realized what this thing was. Now I understood why my brother was basically pooping his pants. This thing was a skinwalker. My instincts kicked in right then and there before I could nope the F out of there with this thing let off a terrible stench like rotting meat before screaming inhumanly. The sound was enough to scare the F out of everyone. My brother was the first up out of his chair and started shouting native words to the creature while I told everyone to get the F inside. No one questioned me when they saw just how deadly serious I was, especially Tony. He's never seen me so scared, so he knew it was a bad situation. We all hightailed it to the cabin with my brother in tow, still shouting native words of the creature, which seemed to keep it at bay, while it gave us enough time to get inside. He slammed and locked the door before turning all the lights off and grabbed a special ash from the kitchen counter and started throwing it at every window and door while chanting. Of course, he had everyone freaked out and basically in tears at that moment. 
After he was done, no one said a word for a long time, all of us still in shock. He grabbed our dad's pistol and had it posted by him for hours. Everyone was entirely too shaken up to even question what happened. We must have fallen asleep eventually because I woke up to my brother packing all of our stuff into two cars early that morning. I understand why. We had native family. We knew what we were dealing with and we knew it could come back and maybe not alone. Before I left, we did a blessing on the cabin and spoke a few calming words to the still very freaked out girls. We left as soon as everything was packed up. To this day, we still haven't explained exactly to our friends what happened that night. And they never bothered to ask us either. I hope that you've enjoyed the stories tonight and I hope that you're fast asleep. your sleep guide tonight. Let's begin by taking a deep breath and then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs. And lastly, let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. Deep, deep, deep. One more deep breath and we're ready to begin. 4 a.m. fire. I live in an old apartment building. I've been here for about two years and my roommates and I have had very few scary experiences so far, except for this one that happened last summer. It was around four in the morning when we were woken from a dead sleep by the fire alarms going off throughout our entire four-story apartment building. Seeing as this place is occupied by mostly seniors, we figured someone had left a pot on the stove again. I grumbled and blindly grabbed for a blanket. Last time we had a false alarm, I was left shivering and barefoot on the sidewalk waiting for the fire department, and I wasn't about to let that happen again. My roommate and I put on our shoes, grabbed my phone and keys, and we poked our head out into the hallway. Nothing seemed off. The hallway was empty. No one else had come out of their apartments yet. Reluctantly, my roommate and I walked down the hall toward the lobby. We figured our neighbors would soon follow suit. 
It was only when we went through the lobby and out the front door that we realized that something was actually wrong. A handful of people who had already come out of the building were running and shouting about how the building was actually on fire this time. We followed them around to the side of the building as more and more people fled in their pajamas, and to our horror, we saw an apartment on the top floor belching out flames. People were frantic, searching for water, a ladder, anything. Someone remarked there was a lady who lived in that apartment who had mobility issues and she needed to be rescued now. And where the hell was the fire department? My roommate was quite disturbed by the whole scene, so we decided to go back to the front of the building, away from the fire. On our way, we saw a guy jump off his balcony to the ground. He rolled when he landed, but I think it still really hurt, judging from how he sat on the grass and groaned for a while. He was lucky to only be on the second floor. There was chaos, yelling, screaming, an odd mix of panic and disinterest, especially among the senior citizens who didn't want to leave the building because using the stairs was so difficult. The fire department arrived much quicker than they had ever before. Seeing as this was a real emergency and it wasn't long before elderly ladies in nightgowns were being rescued via ladders and wheeled off to the hospital next door. At one point, the man who lived below the apartment on fire had a screaming episode at one of the landlords, the one that looked like a walking skeleton with an oxygen tank and a scooter. By the time the fire department got everything under control, it was around 6 or 7 a.m. The sun was up and people were beginning their morning commute. The fire department had blocked off our whole street, which must have been a pain and the entire population of my building sat on the curb in pajamas and blankets. Little kids, old people, broke college kids, the works. The community really pulled together that morning. The public bus service gave us a couple of buses to sit and warm up in instead of standing around the chilly sidewalk. Paramedics handed out blankets and assessed injuries. The people in the surrounding houses were kind enough to bring us water and snacks. One lady brought a serving tray with mugs of tea from her own kitchen and offered it to anyone she could find. My mom came down to rescue my roommate and I, even though she lived an hour outside of town and hadn't even showered yet. She brought us breakfast and a change of clothes as we didn't know when we'd be allowed back into the building. The most disturbing details of what had just taken place that morning came to us as we were waiting on the bus. Everyone was talking about the fire, of course but one man had a particularly horrifying detail to add. He heard through the grapevine that the lady whose apartment caught fire never made it out of the building. Sadly, we suspected as much with her mobility issues and all, but there was more. The firefighters apparently found her in the hall. She had made it out of her apartment, but couldn't escape the smoke. Whether she died from smoke inhalation or from burns, we aren't sure. But one thing that man said that sticks with me is that someone said that as they stood outside and watched the flames, they heard the woman screaming, help me, I'm burning. I've always been afraid of burning to death. And the idea that my neighbor may have had such a horrifying end is deeply disturbing. I know the man who lives below her heard her screaming. He wouldn't stop talking about it. I think he ended up with a form of PTSD from this event, and I don't blame him.
We were all brought to a community center where the fire department and emergency response volunteers helped bring some clarity to the situation and told us what to expect. Everyone was very kind and sympathetic to us. Whatever we needed, they provided for us. All of it is pretty standard procedure, but still, I was extremely thankful to the kindness of the volunteers, firefighters, paramedics, and good Samaritans. It was pretty surreal to be in a situation like that. We had almost nothing on us. My roommate hadn't thought to grab her phone, so she had to borrow mine to let her family know she was okay. We had no money, no ID, none of the essentials, and we had no idea how long we would be homeless. I hadn't been so happy to have my mom with me in a long time. I felt like a scared little girl, even if I didn't show it. We were lucky. The fire happened on the opposite end of the building from us. Our unit was totally unaffected, and we were one of the few allowed back into our apartment the same day. The building stunk of smoke for weeks. Even though the fire took place on the fourth floor in a single apartment, the damage was extensive. Even on the ground floor, the walls were blackened with ash. When they attempted to start fixing up the building, they found asbestos in the walls. A few people were forced to move out of their apartments, and we're talking people who lived there for around 30 years. I remember the night we were allowed back into our apartment. I wanted to box up most of my important possessions and keep them in my car, as if I thought the building was going to catch fire again. My home didn't feel safe anymore, and it wouldn't for several weeks. It would take a long time for us to hear anything about what caused the fire. Last I heard, a space heater was to blame, but I don't know for sure. In the days that followed, the fire was featured on the front page of the local paper. The family that lived just down the hall from us were featured in the picture. The article spelled out details that I had already heard. It labeled the guy that lived below the fire as a hero for attempting to save the lady upstairs. It was a valiant effort, but there was nothing he could have done without endangering himself. I feel sorry for him, and I often wonder if the guilt keeps him up at night. Sometimes I think about the lady who passed away in this building. I listen to a lot of ghost stories, so I wonder if her spirit haunts this place. Her sudden and horrifying death would be the sort of thing to make a ghostlinger on earth, wouldn't it? So many things left unfinished. Regardless, I hope she's at peace, and I hope that my neighbors have been able to find some semblance of peace as well. Four months later, we've regained a sense of normalcy. Things are back to how they were before. If you ignore the orange tarps around the side of the exterior, the restoration vans that come and go every day, and security guards stationed in the lobby, the damage wing is still closed while they try to sort out the asbestos situation. But for those of us who live on the other end of the building, things are relatively normal. I hope they stay that way. The Woman in the White Dress this happened just yesterday, so it's still fresh in my mind. I'm not quite sure what to think of it because it's so bizarre and unbelievable. I might have just been sleep deprived. So last night at maybe 2300 or 11 o'clock, I was walking around my block. My town is relatively safe, so I didn't feel in danger. Plus it was a pretty night. I've been walking around five minutes when a pale woman with blonde hair and a white dress caught my eye from across the street. 
She was about my height and looked to be around my age too. I didn't actually pay attention to her after I first noticed her. While I circled the block again, she was on the same street, a couple of feet in front of me. She was standing on the curb, staring at the cars passing by. It was a main road, so even that late at night, people were still driving on it. I said hello to her, and she turned her gaze to me. I couldn't see her face super well, but from what I think I saw, she had no pupils or color in her eyes. She just stared at me. After a while, I asked if she was okay. She didn't respond again and simply pointed at the road. I was really confused and didn't understand. Right as a red car started coming down the road, she stepped into the road. The car slammed into her and it was a bloody mess. The driver immediately stopped and jumped out. It was a man in his mid-twenties. We both spoke about it, freaked out. He called the police and went around the car to see the state of the girl. Once I circled around the car, she was gone. Not gone as in dead. Gone as in she just wasn't there. The blood on the road was gone too, but not gone from his car. After the police arrived, they concluded that it was a big hoax of a kid who didn't know what they were talking about and some guy who went along with it. The blood on the truck was brought to the investigation only to be found as paint. Nothing else was put up about it. I'm still not sure if what happened was real. It felt so real, but I don't believe in the paranormal. I don't know what it was, if it was just a dream or if it was real, but I remember it like it was. I feel like I can't leave the house now. I don't understand now, and I kind of feel like I'm going crazy. Has anyone else experienced something like this? Out of the dark. My first experience with the supernatural was one of the most terrible life experiences I can remember. It happened when I was young and dumb and wanted to go out to the world and explore. While I was out of my home country of Canada, I witnessed a horror I soon hoped to forget. I had gone on a trip with some of my buddies to Montana just below my home province of Alberta. We were originally going to stay in Yellowstone National Park, decided to head to Glacier National Park first before camping out at Yellowstone for a few days. We finally reached Glacier Park after a six hour drive and had just enough time to do a little hiking before going to our hotel in the nearby town to rest and move on towards Yellowstone. We had gotten to the park around 4.30 and decided it was a great idea to hike after dark so we hiked up the trail looking at the glorious views of rivers and waterfalls of the Avalanche Creek Trail. The light began to fade rather quickly while we were about two-thirds of the way up, and we had hiked into the trail about 10 kilometers, so it would take us about two hours to walk back down from that point. This is when everything goes downhill. Myself and my friends were all outdoorsmen and loved to go hiking and travel around the Rocky Mountains, but we were still inexperienced when it came to night hiking. Since the trail we were on wasn't as traveled at this part of the hike, the trail was hard to follow in the dark, although every now and then we would see a sign that notified us that we were going in the right direction. At some point, maybe a third of the way down the mountain, we ended up going off the trail following a little rabbit trail thinking that we were still on the correct path. We began to figure out that we were definitely not going the right way as my friend checked his compass, showing we were heading deeper into the Rocky Mountains, miles and miles of forest. 
Then begins the mask panic. My friends and I immediately start turning around and begin walking the way we came, but the trail we were following didn't look the same as it had before, leading us to being even more lost than before. That is when we collectively notice how quiet it had gotten. No insects, no birds, nothing. It was dead silence. I knew this was a bad sign as I'm a hunter and when it gets quiet like this, it means there's a large predator around and that it's hunting. We had literally become prey to some unknown beast in the woods. We all began getting a sudden spike of anxiety and I let the guys know what was up. That's when we heard a noise that brought terror, a guttural howl from up the mountain. It was then followed by many more. My heart went into my throat and the terror I felt made me shake. Most of my friends did the same, all but two. The others had already dipped and began running in the opposite direction of the howls. We all followed soon after, running ourselves ragged until we looked behind and saw the eyes shine of something that was much larger than we anticipated. The eyes were at least six feet off the ground and moving towards us fast. That is when we split up running in random directions, hoping to lose these beasts. It was never going to happen. I could hear the breath of one of these things about 20 feet behind me and gaining. All of a sudden, my friend appears from the trees to my right. and We end up running together until I cut from him, hoping to escape. I know I left him to die that night, but it was a last-ditch effort that worked out to my advantage. I heard the screams from my left and ran as fast as I could away from them with tears rolling down my face as I heard his screams for help. I'm shrieking in pain, then nothing, as if he never existed. I continued running down the mountain until I saw a familiar sight ahead of me. It was one of the trail signs showing how far you were on the trail. I stopped checking where I was and started running again, hoping to get away from the creatures on the mountain. Another kilometer down the trail, I began hearing howls getting closer and closer by the moment, causing me to run even harder. Looking ahead, I saw the sign saying parking lot and zoomed past it in my panic, looking for the keys in my pocket and scrambling towards the only vehicle still left in the parking lot, my car. I used my fob to unlock my car from a distance and ran as hard as I could towards it, slamming to the side of my door, opening it, hopping in and starting the car. I looked out of my window towards the trail entrance and I saw two pairs of eyes staring at me just out of range of the lamp posts. They stared at me before disappearing back into the brush as I drove away, never looking back. I arrived at the ranger station by the park entrance and ran inside looking disheveled and terrified. I began telling the ranger at the desk what had happened. He looked at me with a sad face as if he knew something like this would happen and called up the search and rescue team to come help in the morning to look for them. They were never found. sleep paralysis. Before I start, you've got to know I have a long history of multiple sleep paralysis ever since I was a child. I dare say multiple in a single night. I'm an 18-year-old male, and I moved out from my mother's home two years ago. I've been independent since then. I've been roommates with my uncle for a couple of months, but that's a different story. Anyway, this is going to be a little bit awkward, given the fact that I was listening to scary stories while trying to fall back asleep after waking up at 5 a.m. While I was falling asleep, 
with my headphones on, I started to realize that I had woken up, but my body couldn't move. Now, it was weird for me given the fact that I hadn't had any sleep paralysis for a very long time, but I knew what I was going through, and my vision started to blur. My head felt heavy, but I could still hear the voice coming out of my headphones narrating a story. A strange thing is that I somehow managed to move my hand and tried to take off my earbuds. As much as I tried, I couldn't take them off. It's as if they were glued to my ears. I somehow managed to get them off, but here's where it got freaky. I could still hear the voice. I touched my ears and checked if there were anything there. Nothing. I couldn't feel the earbuds at all. It was weird. Yelling at my uncle, calling his name to see if he could hear me. But every time I tried to yell, my voice got weak. It's as if instead of yelling, I was whispering in a loud way. That's when I started to see things like demons and deformed faces just staring at me and evilly smiling. I can't explain how they looked, but they were flashing in the ceiling. Weird, right? Yeah, I know. As I sort of was freaking out, I literally did what any young kid would do. I hid under my blanket. Not because I was very scared or frightened for my life, but to see if those faces would go away. They did. It doesn't end there, though. Here's what the most freaky and weird thing was. As my vision started to clear, I was able to move freely. Is when I realized I never even moved a muscle the whole time. I was going through sleep paralysis. It turns out I was hallucinating and imagining what I was actually moving and yelling. Like I've said, I've had experience with sleep paralysis for a long time, so I totally have experience on how to actually get out of it when it's a normal one, where you're just awake and can't move. Yeah, I know that's the whole point of one, but not all of them are hallucinations and imagining. This was one of the few paralysis where I hallucinated and imagined things, and like I said, I haven't had one in a year. I could say this is the most recent one. I know it's probably not that scary, but for those who have experienced sleep paralysis, they know how terrifying it can be and get. It takes a strong mind and soul to get out of one because you're literally struggling with yourself to be able to move and just come back to reality. For those who never experienced sleep paralysis in their life, I really hope you never do. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that you're fast asleep.
Veronica, and I will be your sleep guide tonight. Let's begin by taking a deep breath, and then another. As we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and your arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs. And lastly, let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. One more breath and we're ready to begin. My new apartment. My name is Nicholas Abernathy. My friends call me Nick. I am 32 years old with a very, very, very sound mind. I am not crazy. Although crazy people don't know they're crazy, I'm 99% sure I am not. About a year ago, I lived at 253 Dead Man's Lane in a small town in Delaware. I can't remember the name, but that is where the story takes place. There's a reason they call it Dead Man's Lane. I know that now. I don't live there anymore. I now reside at an undisclosed location due to the events that occurred at my previous residence. I don't want them to know where I am. I hope you understand. The town was a very small town, a one stoplight town. One so small that if you blink while driving through, you'll miss the entire thing, which was perfect for me. It was a welcomed escape from the hustle and bustle of city life, which was slowly draining me to the point of exhaustion. So when my boss at the time came to me and said that our company was downsizing and that I would be let go, I gladly took the severance package and moved on with my life. I grew up in a small town. So I was familiar with the quiet simplicity that it offered and I longed to go back there again. So while sitting in my big city apartment, I grabbed my laptop and started to search small town living, houses for sale and things of that sort. I came upon an old Victorian house built in 1859. It was beautiful, dark blue, dark gray trim, two floors, balcony, front porch and a very small room at the top of the house with an octagon-shaped window in it. For some unknown reason, I've always wanted to live in such a house, so this was like a dream come true. The price wasn't bad. Actually, it was pretty good. Low, some might say. So I called the number displayed in the ad and made arrangements with the older gentleman on the other end to come view the house three days later. Upon arriving at the house, it looked like the picture in the ad except there was one small detail the ad did not say. The house was in the middle of a giant dirt field all by itself. No trees or shrubbery around, just a dirt field. That time of year, some farmers should have had corn or something growing in a field that big, but there was nothing. This struck me as kind of odd. The only thing besides the house in the field was one electric pole with wires running from it to the house and a transformer on top. The driveway was at least a quarter mile long 
with other little roads branching off of it, going to certain parts of the field, then connecting back to the main driveway. One road wrapped around the entire house. It seemed like forever to get there. Once there, I met an old man who said his name was Bernie or Benny or something with a B. I can't really remember. He said that he was the owner of the house and that I could feel free to look around if I wanted. I asked if he was coming in and his, his face turned pale as he said, no, I'll stay right here, thank you. Looking back now, that should have been a red flag. An owner that wouldn't go into his own house, red flag alert, but I was naive, blowing it off and entered the house alone. I expected it to be a little run down and dirty given the dirt fill that surrounded it. But to my surprise, it was immaculately clean, completely furnished and looking like something straight out of a magazine. I went through each room in total awe of its beauty. Each room except the little room with the octagon window. I couldn't find a door or staircase leading to it. This too, I found a little odd. And the basement. I've never been a big fan of basements, so I figured I'll go check it out at some point. What's the big deal? It's a basement. I met up with the old man outside and we discussed and agreed on a price. He informed me that everything in the house was included in the deal under one condition. No furniture could be removed from the home or moved to any other part of the home. Everything must stay exactly where it is. You may use any of the appliances, books, and things of that sort, but they must be returned exactly where they are now. You may add to it, but nothing can be removed. Given that all the furniture and such was from the Victorian era, I thought, why get rid of it and agree to this condition? An agreement I would later regret. I'm going to skip the part about going to the bank and financing and all that crap. No one really cares about that anyway. Moving in day was exciting for me. I finally got the house of my dreams. I just started a new job. I'm back to the quiet life. I left all my furniture and stuff in my old apartment, only packing my clothes and toiletries. I figured maybe the next guy or girl could use some of it. Anyway, I met the old man at the house. I'm just gonna call him Mr. B since I can't seem to remember his name. I later found out that Mr. B lived just two blocks away with his wife of 43 years, Isabella. I never got the chance to meet Isabella, though I wish I had. He was old, still mill worker. You could tell from his physique. He may have been old, but the man had muscle. He had bought the house some 30 years back with the same conditions that he had told me. He never lived in the place. Said it troubled his wife immensely from the first day she saw it. He tried to sell it many times before, but the deals always fell through for some reason. Until then, Mr. B handed me the keys, and as he did, he grabbed a hold of my hand hard and pulled me to him and whispered something in my right ear. He whispered, beware of the rain. There's a reason he said that to me, I know now. He then hung his head and slowly walked away. How he knew, I don't know, but he did. My first couple of weeks in my new house were rather uneventful. The weather was nice with a slight breeze. Even opened a couple of windows upstairs to get some airflow in there. 
I had asked Mr. B about opening the windows, and he said it was fine since they were part of the house, not possessions within the house. So I left them open for a few days. On my first night, since the place was fully furnished, I hung up my clothes, which took all of 20 minutes. I put my shampoos and such in the master bathroom, which is almost as big as my bedroom. I then went to the local grocery store for some food and drinks. I can't remember the name. It's not really important. I spent the rest of the time checking out each room one by one and seeing everything the house had to offer. About a week or so later, I finally found that door that led to the little room with the octagon window. It was a secret door panel hidden in the closet of the room that I decided to make my bedroom. For some unknown strange reason, something told me to push on the back of the closet, and I did. The door swung open, revealing a spiral black metal staircase that led to said room. It was very small, about the size of a walk-in closet by today's standards. In the room was a very old desk positioned just under the octagon window and a stand-up lamp to its left. Old wood planks for walls as well as the ceiling, and the floor was what looked to be brand new hardwood. So I decided to make it my office, the place I could do my writing. Since I had a great view of the dirt filled out the window, what better place to draw inspiration from? That's a joke, by the way. The rest of the house consisted of five bedrooms, a huge kitchen, a parlor, a living area, three full bathrooms, a study, and a basement. Oh, that basement. I decided to check it out one night. I was bored and needed something to do. That was a bad idea. The basement was kind of creepy. I'm lying. It was really creepy. The door to the basement had little holes all along the edges, top, bottom, and right side of the door, like so when it knelt it shut at one point. The stairs leading down to the basement were old and rickety and would probably fall apart at any given moment. Unlike the rest of the house that was immaculately clean, like I noted in the previous passages, the basement was not. There was dust and dirt and cobwebs everywhere. It had a strange odor. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I know now. Along the far wall, there was a series of five file cabinets covered in dust. Over to the right, it looked like two metal surgical tables covered with white sheets. In the middle of those tables, there was a small stand with a large glass container with tubes running out of it, some kind of pump machine beside it. All kinds of knives, gloves, and masks were scattered over the floor. It looked like no one had been down there for ages. I ran up the stairs as quickly as I could, shut the basement door, and never went down there again. What was that place? About a month or so went by. All this time I couldn't get what Mr. B whispered to me that day. I moved out of my head. So every morning while drinking my coffee, I really miss coffee. Anyway, I would check the weather app on my phone to see the conditions for that day. On that day, it was going to be partly cloudy with a 60% chance of rain. Okay, maybe now we'll see what there is to be afraid of. Just like the app said, it started to rain about 4 p.m. It didn't last long, but that's how it all started. I was in my office and the rain started to fall. Almost as soon as it did, I started to hear music. Not today's music, but orchestral music, big band music. 
I didn't have a radio up there. I'm in the middle of a field, so it couldn't be a car. I started to get concerned. Where was it coming from? I walked down the spiral staircase to my room, still hearing it play. I walked into the hallway, into the room across from mine. As soon as I put my hand on the doorknob, it stopped. And the rain did too. That was weird, I thought. It must have been my imagination. The rain hitting the gutters, somehow making the acoustic sounds of the music in the house. Something. There had to be a reason. After a while, I stopped thinking about it and went on with my night. A few days later, I ran into Mr. B at the hardware store. I told him about what happened, and he didn't seem surprised. He just said, I tried to tell you, and left. The day that changed my life forever happened about two weeks later. I was at work. I had taken an assistant manager position at a local department store. The pay wasn't as good as my previous job but it wasn't as stressful either. During my shift, this guy came up to me out of nowhere and said, you own the old Bennett place out on Dead Man's Lane, don't you? I was reluctant to answer, but I finally said, yes, yes I do. He was a big guy, a biker type, 50-ish with long gray hair and tats. He said, you're braver than I am. I wouldn't go near that place. Hope you found Jesus, you're gonna need him. The ride home that day was unsettling. Everything that had happened was starting to get to me. I was nervous, nervous to go home. After what this guy said, what Mr. B said, and the music thing, that weird basement, I was on edge. On edge so much that when I walked through the door, instead of placing my keys on the shelf by the door, I tossed my keys hitting a small ceramic ballerina off the shelf and breaking it. Oh, crap, I said loudly. Something has not only been moved, but broken. There was no way to put it back. Then I heard it. A slow growling sound like a wild animal came from the basement door, then from the kitchen, then from upstairs, then from everywhere. I couldn't take it anymore. I grabbed my head and fell to my knees, falling over into the fetal position. I started screaming, stop, stop. I'm sorry, please stop. It didn't stop. It got louder and louder. From the floor, I could see the basement door open quickly then slam shut. All the doors were doing it now, except the front door that remained closed. I felt a very cold breeze go right through my body. Every light in the house was turning on and off and on and off. I managed to get to my feet. Running down the hallway toward the kitchen, the main floor bathroom door flung open, hitting me hard and knocking me backwards down the hallway. I lost my footing and fell to the floor. I must have hit my head because the next thing I remember was waking up on the floor, hearing the sound of the doorbell buzzing over and over again. All was silent and calm except for the buzzing. The buzzing soon turned to loud pounding upon the front door. I pulled myself together, standing to answer the door when I heard, Nick, Nick, I know you're in there. Nicholas, answer the dang door. I opened the door quickly, only to see Mr. B standing there, shaking and sweating, not nearly the composed man I knew. There was a really bad storm coming. We've got to get out of here. I can't with all good conscience let you stay here alone. We've got to go now. 
The storm clouds moved in fast at a speed I've never seen before. Thunder started to roar. I tried to explain to Mr. B that I broke a knickknack. In his panicked state, he said, that's the least of your worries. Let's go. The rain started falling hard. Lightning was crashing as the thunder roared on. That music started playing again. Only this time, Mr. B heard it as well. Then what happens next seemed like something out of a bad horror movie. The house seems to suck Mr. B into it, nearly knocking me down in the process and sliding him fast across the floor, slamming him into a table that laid across the adjacent wall, breaking the leg of the table and forcing it to crash to the floor. Another thing broken. The front door slammed to the floor so hard that it broke the front two windows completely allowing the rain to pour into the house. I quickly ran over to make sure Mr. B was okay. It's too late. We're never getting out of here now, Mr. B said angrily. The growling started again, only this time it seemed it was right in front of us. I felt a real bad burning on my left arm. Lifting my sleeve to see what it was, I saw three scratch marks with blood dripping from the third. Mr. B grabbed a hold of his neck after lifting his hand, and I noticed the same three scratches. Only this time, all of them were bleeding, bleeding bad. The house is coming alive. Upstairs, we must get upstairs. A lightning bolt hit the electric pole outside, causing the house to go black. Now, in total darkness, hearing that music, hearing that growling, and both of us bleeding, I quickly pulled out my phone to turn on the light so we could at least see by that. Mr. B's phone was broken in the crash, turned on my light, only to notice that the cellar door is slowly opening by itself and the growling getting louder, what appeared to be a black mass of dew pouring from the basement door and heading in our direction fast. I screamed, look out, and grabbed Mr. B by the arm, pulling him out of the way, barely escaping the goo. We frantically ran up the stairs. What should have been 20 to 25 steps seemed to take more like 30 or 40. This house is alive, Mr. B yelled. Finally reaching the top, I shined the light down the hallway of doors that was on the second floor. Hallway seemed longer than I remembered with extra doors that I never had seen before. The walls were expanding and contracting like the house was breathing. There was a red substance resembling blood, including, for all I know, oozing from the ceiling down the halls. My bedroom was at the end of the hallway. Mr. B and I made a run for the last door on the left, my bedroom. We ran and ran, and just as the goo was about to hit the floor, I arrived at my bedroom door, grabbing the knob and opening it quickly, looking back to hoping to see Mr. B right behind me. But unfortunately, he was not. Shining my light down the hallway, I could see that he was about a quarter of the way from the door, running as fast as he could, but getting nowhere. It was like he was running on the treadmill. The red substance oozed down onto the floor and quickly made a beeline for Mr. B. I screamed, give me your hand. I stretched my hand out as far as I could. Mr. B extended his, but it was too late. The red substance reached his shoe. 
Mr. B screamed in agony as the substance began to burn him. The smell of burning flesh filled the hallway. As more of the substance reached him, Mr. B ignited into flames. I can still hear his screams in my head. It only outlasted a few seconds and then it was gone, and so was my friend. Mr. B was gone. I quickly ran into my room. From out of the bedroom window, I could see what appeared to be flames. When the lightning hit the pole, it must have caused a transformer to catch fire, igniting the house as well. The outside of the house was burning, but not the inside, and the rain wasn't stopping it. What the hell is this place? Shining my light back into the room, I could see the shadows and the shape of people appearing in the walls, some short, some tall. Then the voices started. Woman, I'm so cold. Little girl, mommy, old man, help me. I quickly ran up to my office, the only place left to go. From out of the window, I could see the rain pouring down. Lightning bolts lighting up the skies. The voices continued. Down below, I could see the rain had fallen so hard and fast that it washed away all the dirt from the field, exposing skeletal remains all around the house. Then it hit me. Oh my God, this was not a house. It was an old funeral home built on cemetery grounds. They must have removed the headstones and left the bodies. That would explain everything. In shock, I stepped backwards, my head hitting the wall and sliding down into a sitting position. My phone had fallen to the floor. The light just so happened to be shining in the doorway to the room. I mumbled to myself, I didn't know, I didn't know. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see a black mass in the shape of a person crawling through the doorway and over to me. Shrieking a horrible sound, it reached his hand out as if to choke me. Totally exhausted, I put my hands over my eyes and screamed as the shadow engulfed the room. Somebody, somewhere, must have seen the flames and called the fire department. From speaking with my landlord and police officials, I gathered that when they found me, I was in the basement laying in one of the tables mumbling to myself. I don't recall any of that. Mr. B's body was never recovered. I had told this story to the police as some guy dressed like Judge Judy and they all looked at me like I was crazy. I am not crazy. I like my new apartment. It's kind of small, like a studio apartment. I got a bed and a dresser, a nightstand and a lamp. Best of all, the rent is free. I don't have to work anymore. My neighbors are nice, a little quirky if you ask me, but nice nonetheless. There's a TV that we share in the living room, a game room where we gather and play cards, ping pong, and games of that sort. I have my own bathroom, which is nice. Food is included. It's mostly just mush, but it's still food. Security here is tight. There are cameras everywhere and there are rules. If you break those rules, the landlord would move you into a much smaller apartment with no windows. But it gives you this cool jacket to wear that lets you hug yourself. I like that jacket. There are a bunch of nice ladies that come by every day to give us little white pieces of candy. Sometimes they're different colors, but mostly white. Sometimes they even come at night. Oh, I gotta go now. It's bedtime. I'm excited. Tomorrow we go outside. Good night.
the doll in the storage room. When I was younger, I'd go visit my grandparents all the time. They lived in a one-floor house with an unfinished basement. I never liked it down there. It felt small for a big basement. There was a little door down there that was for storage, but I always got a horrible feeling when getting close to it. And let me add, this was a newer house that was about six years old. Now, during that time, I was about six or seven. I felt so uncomfortable going down there, even though I was with somebody. I remember going there with my grandma to help with something. She had to run upstairs because someone rang the doorbell and she said she'd be right back, even though she knew how I felt about being down there alone. I nodded and said, okay. She was gone and I was alone and I was starting to get a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. I didn't move. I didn't even want to. Even though the lights were on, this is where everything started happening and it gives me chills. The lights started to flicker and I started to hear noises and what sounded like talking. It was not coming from upstairs, but the storage room. I heard someone say my name. Here's the part that freaks me out the most. The voice sounded like my grandma. I was confused at how am I hearing her when she's upstairs. I didn't want to move, but me being the curious one I am, started moving towards the storage room door. The closer I got, the worse the bad feeling came. When I got to the door, the lights turned off in the basement. I wanted to run upstairs and hide, go home somewhere that wasn't the basement. I heard my name again for the second time. My grandma's voice asked me to open the door to help her. So I did, and I regret it. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. I couldn't hear anything but faint laughing, and it felt like forever, but then the laughing stopped. The lights turned back on in the basement, and I felt a little bit better. The downside was I could see the little storage room. I saw a small clown doll in the corner, and my grandma hates clowns with a passion. So why was this clown doll down there? I have no idea. Then the lights turned on and I saw red that looked like blood all over the place. I screamed and blacked out and the next thing I knew I was laying on the couch. My grandma looking at me asking if I was okay. I have no idea if that was real or a dream, but it sure felt real. burglary horror story. I live in a fairly secure area and have two dogs. One is a large Doberman, the other is a poodle. I was home alone as my parents were out for the weekend. Our dogs bark a lot as they're very productive and the neighbors hate it when the dogs bark. I'd often get notes telling us to make the dogs be quiet. One of the more threatening ones was that he would hurt the dog if he wouldn't be quiet. So my parents had them taken to a dog kennel to avoid any complications. I was home alone playing video games and watching movies for the weekend. It was the night after they left and I was playing a video game that I think was Rainbow Six Siege. I was playing with a few of my friends and I had a microphone on and I was playing with the window open. My friends kept telling me to stop making a squeaky sound. I questioned what he meant and they said that there was a loud banging I removed my headphones and that's when I heard it, the sound of something slamming into the gate. I peered out and it was a tall, stocky man with a black hood on, looking down, slamming his body into the fence as the fence was weak. 
The wood was splitting. I decided to call the police and my parents, but decided to stay near the window. I was still watching the man. As I was talking to the 911 operator, the operator told me to lock myself in a room, get out of sight, and that a police officer was on the way. But curiosity got the better of me, and I decided to keep watching him until he finally broke the wooden gate off its hinges. He didn't enter, and he strapped something around his shoulder. Upon further inspection, only from the moonlight, I saw it was a hunting rifle strapped to his back. That's when I went and hid underneath the bed and listened out for anything until a loud shatter broke the silence. It was the back door, smashing, followed by footsteps entering the house. The intruder sounded like he was searching for something. He was creeping up the stairs until the sound of the police sirens flooded my ears. I made the stupid decision of bolting and trying to escape the house. I started to get to the stairs and turn the corner and was greeted by a large man following the description of the man trying to break in. He gripped his neck and the police sirens got louder. They were knocking on the door. He was quickly losing his breath from the man strangling him, the cloth covering his face slipping down to reveal my neighbor. I was nearly out of breath. He let me go, he gripped his rifle, aimed it at me and pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire. He had left the safety on. The police kicked the door down and tased the man. He was found and charged with breaking and entering, carrying an unlicensed firearm. I'm thankful that the safety was on. This could have ended very badly. I later went to my Xbox and told my friends what happened. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you all are fast asleep. then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs and let your torso sink deep into your mattress. Deep, deep, deep. One more deep breath, and we're ready to begin. The Slenderman 
The Slitter Man was created on June 10th, 2009 on a thread in the Something Awful Internet Forum. The thread was a Photoshop contest in which users were challenged to create paranormal images. Forum poster Eric Knudsen, under the pseudonym Victor Surge, contributed two black and white images of groups of children to which he added a tall, thin, spectral figure wearing a black suit. Although previous entries had consisted solely of photographs, Serge supplemented his submission with snatches of text, supposedly from witnesses, describing the abductions of groups of children and giving the character the name, the Slenderman. The quote under the Faust photograph read, we didn't want to go, we didn't want to kill them, but his persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. 1983, photographer unknown, presumed dead. The quote under the second photograph read, one of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished and for what is referred to as the Slenderman. Deformity cited as filmed effects by officials. Fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13th, 1986. These additions effectively transformed the photographs into a work of fiction. Subsequent posters expanded upon the character, adding their own visual or text contributions. Knudsen was inspired to create the Slenderman primarily by Zach Parsons, That Insidious Beast, Stephen King's The Mist, Reports of Shadow People, Mothman, and The Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Other inspirations for the character were the tall man from the 1979 film Phantasm, H.P. Lovecraft, the surrealist work of William S. Burroughs, and the survival horror video games Silent Hill and Resident Evil. Newton's intention was to formulate something whose motivations can barely be comprehended and which caused unease and terror in the general population. Other pre-existing fictional or legendary creatures which are similar to the Slenderman include the Gentleman, Black-Suited Pell, Bald Demons from Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode Hush, Men in Black, many accounts of which grant them an uncanny appearance with an unnatural walk and Asian features. And the question, a DC comic superhero with a blank face whose secret identity is Victor Sage, a name similar to Knudsen's alias, Victor Surge. In her book, Folklore, Horror Stories, and the Slenderman, the Development of an Internet Mythology, Professor Shira Chess 
of the University of Georgia connected the Slenderman to ancient folklore about fairies. Like fairies, the Slenderman is otherworldly with motives that are often difficult to grasp. Like fairies, his appearance is vague and often shifts to reflect what the viewer wants or fears to see. And like fairies, the Slenderman calls the woods and wild places his home and kidnaps children. The Slenderman soon went viral, spawning numerous works of fan art, cosplay, and online fiction known as creepypasta. Horror stories told in short snatches of easy, copyable text that spread from site to site. Divorced from its original creator, The Slenderman became the subject of myriad stories by multiple authors within an overarching mythos. Many aspects of the Slenderman mythos first appeared on the original Something Awful thread. One of the earliest additions was added by a forum user, Thorough Up, who created a folklore story set in 16th century Germany involving a character called Der Groben, which implied to be an early reference to Slenderman. The first video series involving the Slenderman evolved from a post on the Something Awful thread by user C. Gars. It tells of a fictional film school friend named Alex Crayley that stumbled upon something troubling while shooting his first feature-length project, Marble Hornets. The video series, published in found footage style on YouTube, forms an alternate reality game describing the filmer's fictional experiences with Slenderman. The ARG also incorporates a Twitter feed and an alternate YouTube channel created by a user named Toothyurk. As of 2013, Marble Hornets has over 250,000 subscribers around the world and has received 55 million views. Other Slenderman-themed YouTube serials follow, including Everyman Hybrid and Tribe 12. In 2012, The Slenderman was adapted into a video game titled Slender the Eight Pages. Within its first month of release, the game was downloaded over 2 million times. Several popular variants of the game followed, including Slenderman Shadow and Slenderman for iOS, which became the second most popular app download. The sequel to Slender the Eight Pages, Slender the Arrival, was released in 2013. Several independent films about the Slenderman have been released or are in development, including Entity and The Slenderman, released free online after a $10,000 Kickstarter campaign. In 2013, it was announced that Marble Hornets would become a feature film. Because the Slenderman's fictional mythology has evolved without an official canon for reference, his appearance, motives, habits, and abilities are not fixed, but change depending on the storyteller. He is most commonly described as very tall and thin, with unnaturally tentacle-like arms, or merely tentacles, which he can extend to intimidate or capture prey. In most stories, his face is white and featureless, but occasionally his face appears differently to anyone who sees it. He appears to be wearing a dark suit and tie. 
The Slenderman is often associated with the forest and or abandoned location and has the ability to teleport. Proximity to the Slenderman is often said to trigger a slender sickness, a rapid onset of paranoia, nightmares, and delusions accompanied by nosebleeds. Early stories featured him targeting children or young adults. Some featured young adults driven insane or to act on his behalf, while others did not, and others claimed that investigating the Slenderman will draw his attention. The web series Marvel Hornets established the idea of proxies, humans who fall under the Slenderman's influence, though initially they were simply violently insane rather than puppets of the Slenderman. Marvel Hornets also introduced the idea that the Slenderman could interfere with video and audio recordings, as well as the Slenderman symbol, which became a common trope of Slender fiction. Graphic violence and body horror are uncommon in the Slenderman mythos, and many narratives choose to leave the fate of his victims obscure. Shira Chess notes that it's important to note that few of the retellings identify exactly what kind of monster the Slenderman might be and what his specific intentions are. These points all remain mysteriously and usefully vague. Media scholar and folklorist Andrew Peck attributes the success of Slenderman to his highly collaborative nature. Because the character and its motives are shrouded in mystery, Users can easily adapt existing Slenderman tropes and imaginary to create new stories. This ability for users to tap into the ideas of others while also supplying their own helped ensure the collaborative nature that rose surrounding the Slenderman. Instead of privileging the choices of certain creators as canonical, this collaborative culture informally locates ownership of the creature across the community. In these respects, the Slenderman is similar to campfire stories or urban legends, and the character's success comes from enabling both social interaction and personal acts of creative expression. Although nearly all users understand that the Slenderman is not real, they suspend that disbelief in order to become more engrossed when telling or listening to stories. This adds a sense of authenticity to Slenderman performances and blurs the line between legend and reality, keeping the creature as an object of legend dialectic. This ambiguity has led some to the confusion over the character's origin and purpose. Only five months after its creation, George Nury's Coast to Coast AM, a radio call-in show, devoted to the paranormal and conspiracy theories, began receiving callers asking about the Slenderman. Two years later, an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune described his origins as difficult to pinpoint. Eric Knudsen has commented that many people, despite understanding that the Slenderman was created on the Something Awful forums, still entertain the possibility that he might be real. Shira Chess describes the Slenderman as a metaphor for helplessness, power differentials, and anonymous forces. Peck sees parallels between the Slenderman and common anxieties about the digital age, such as feelings of constant connectedness, 
and unknown third-party observation. Similarly, Ty Van Horn, a writer for The Elm, has suggested that the Slenderman represents modern fear of the unknown in an age flooded with information. People have become so accustomed to ignorance that they now fear what they cannot understand. Troy Wagner, the creator of Marble Hornets, ascribes the terror of the Slenderman to his malleability. People can shape it into whatever frightens them most. Tina Marie Boyer noted that the Slenderman is a prohibitive monster, but the cultural boundaries he guards are not clear. Victims do not know when they have violated or crossed them. On May 31st, 2014, two 12-year-old girls in Waukesha, Wisconsin, held down and stabbed a 12-year-old classmate 19 times. When questioned later by authorities, they reportedly claimed that they wished to commit a murder as a first step to becoming proxies for the Slenderman, having read about it online. They also stated that they were afraid that Slenderman would kill their families if they did not commit the murder. After the perpetrators left the scene, the victim crawled out of the woods to a roadway, a passing cyclist alerted authorities, and the victim survived the attack. Both attackers have been diagnosed with mental illnesses, but have also been charged as adults and are each facing up to 65 years in prison. One of the girls reportedly said Slenderman watches her, can read minds, and could teleport. Experts testified in court that she also said she conversed with Lord Voldemort and one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. On August 1st, 2014, she was found incompetent to stand trial and her prosecution was suspended until her condition improved. On November 12th, 2014, a doctor judged that her condition had improved enough for her to stand trial. And on December 19th, 2014, the judge ruled that both girls were competent to stand trial. In August 2015, the presiding judge ruled that the girls would be tried as adults. They were tried separately. On August 21, 2017, one of the girls, now 15, pleaded guilty to being a party to attempted second-degree homicide, but claimed that she was not responsible for her actions on grounds of insanity. Although prosecutors alleged that she knew what she was doing was wrong, the jury determined that she was mentally ill during the attack. She will spend at least three years in a mental hospital. On December 21st, Waukesha County Circuit Judge Michael Bowren sentenced Wire, then 16 years old, to be hospitalized for 25 years from the date of the crime, which would keep her institutionalized until age 37. In a statement to the media on June 4, 2014, Eric Newsom said, I am deeply saddened by the tragedy in Wisconsin, and my heart goes out to the families of those affected by this terrible act. He stated that he would not be giving interviews on the matter. On September 25, 2017, it was reported that Morgan Geyser, then 15, had agreed to plead guilty to attempting to commit first-degree homicide in an arrangement that would allow her to avoid jail time. In terms of the arrangement, 
Geyser would remain at the mental hospital where she had been staying for the past two years for at least a further three years. On February 1, 2018, the Associated Press reported that Geyser had been sentenced to 40 years in the Wisconsin Mental Hospital, the maximum sentence allowed. The stabbing in Waukesha spawned a nationwide moral panic over Slenderman across the United States. Parents across the nation became worried about the potential dangers that stories about Slenderman might pose to their children's safety. Russell Jack, the police chief of Waukesha, warned that the Slenderman stabbing should be a wake-up call for all parents, that the internet is full of dark and wicked things, a warning which numerous media outlets publicized. After hearing the story, an unidentified woman from Cincinnati, Ohio, told a WLWT-TV reporter in June 2014 that her 13-year-old daughter had attacked her with a knife and had written macabre fiction, some involving the Slenderman, who the mother said was motivated the attack. On September 4, 2014, a 14-year-old girl in Port Ritchie, Florida, allegedly set her family's house on fire while her mother and nine-year-old brother were inside. Police reported that the teenager had been reading online stories about Slenderman, as well as Atushi Okubo's manga, Soul Eater. Eddie Daniels of the Pasco County Sheriff's Office said the girl had visited the website that contains a lot of the Slenderman information and stories. It would be safe to say that there is a connection to that. During an early 2015 epidemic of suicide attempts by young people ages 12 to 24 on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, Slenderman was cited as an influence. The Oglala Sioux tribe president noted that many Native Americans traditionally believed in a suicide spirit similar to the Slenderman. Other Sioux described the big man as a messenger or sign warning that society is developing in a dangerous direction. A documentary film on the incident called Beware the Slenderman, directed by Irene Taylor Brodsky, was released by HBO Films in March 2016 and was broadcast on HBO on January 23, 2017. The Waukesha stabbing and the negative media attention it generated irreversibly altered the Slenderman legend and the online community surrounding it. What had previously just been creepy horror meme to most people suddenly acquired a new level of reality that most fans of Slenderman found horrifying. Meanwhile, by around the same time, the Slenderman character had lost much of its original popularity. Most of the original blogs that had once been devoted to Slenderman either shut down completely or became less popular. Slenderman's presence in mainstream popular culture also contributed to a decline in how frightening he seemed to many people. The late 2010s also saw an increase in benevolent portrayals of Slenderman, with many depictions of him from this period portraying him as an anti-hero who protects victimized children from bullies, although often by violent means. In some portrayals of Slenderman from the late 2010s, he has a daughter named Skinny Sally, who is portrayed as a young girl covered in cuts and bruises. 
Slenderman sometimes is portrayed carrying skinny Sally on his shoulders protectively. Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of folklore at Utah State University, observes that the increase in benevolent portrayals of Slenderman seems to have begun shortly after the stabbing in Waukesha, and states that this trend towards a benevolent Slenderman may be a reaction by fans of the character to the violence of the stabbing. Despite the decline in popular interest in Slenderman, commercial adaptations of the character continued. In 2015, the film adaptation of Marble Hornets titled Always Watching a Marble Hornet Story was released on VOD, where the character was portrayed by Doug Jones. In 2016, Sony Pictures subsidiary Screen Gems partnered with Mythology Entertainment to bring a Slenderman film into theaters with the title character portrayed by Javier Botet. The film generated considerable controversy soon after it was announced, with many accusing the filmmakers of trying to capitalize off the Waukesha stabbings. Bill Wire, the father of Anissa Wire, stated, it's absurd that they wanna make a movie like this. All we're doing is extending the pain of all three of these families. The progressive advocacy group CARE2 created an online petition which received over 19,000 signatures demanding that the film not be released, labeling, labeling the film as crass commercialism as its worst and a naked cash grab built on the exploitation of a deeply traumatic event and the people who lived it. Sony representatives insisted that the film was based on the fictional character that had become popular online and not on the Waukesha stabbing. Upon its release in August 2018, the film Slenderman, despite being declared a box office bomb and receiving both little marketing and overwhelming negative reviews from critics, went on to grow several times its $10 million budget worldwide. David Ehrlich of IndieWire gave the film a D, writing a tasteless and inedibly undercooked serving of the internet's stalest creepypasta, Slenderman aspires to be for the YouTube era what the ring was to the last gasps of the VHS generation. But there's one fundamental difference that sets the two movies apart. The ring is good and Slenderman is terrible. Writing for The Verge, Carly Veloci called the Slenderman movie a nail in the coffin of a dying fandom. Several scholars have argued that despite being a fictional work with identifiable origin point, the Slenderman represents a form of digital folklore. Shira Chess argues that the Slenderman exemplifies the similarities between traditional folklore and the open source ethos of the internet and that, unlike those of traditional monsters such as vampires and werewolves, the fact that the Slenderman's mythos can be tracked and signposted offers a powerful insight into how myth and folklore form. Chess identifies three aspects of the Slenderman mythos that tie it to folklore. Collectivity, meaning that it is created by a collective rather than a single individual. Variability, meaning that the story changes depending on the teller and performance, meaning that the storyteller's narrative changes to reflect the audience's response. 
Andrew Peck also considers the Slenderman to be an authentic form of folklore and notes a similarity to emergent forms of offline legend performance. Peck suggests that the digital folklore performance extends the dynamics of face-to-face performance in several notable ways, such as by occurring asynchronously, encouraging imitation and personalization, while also allowing perfect replication, combining elements of oral, written, and visual communication, and generating shared expectations for performance that enact group identity despite the lack of physically present group. He concludes that the Slenderman represents a digital legend cycle that combines the generic conventions and emergent qualities of oral and visual performance with the collaborative potential of networked communication. Jeff Tolber also accepts the Slenderman as folkloric and it suggests it represents a process he calls reverse ostension. Ostension in folkloristics is the process of acting out a folk narrative. According to Tolbert, the Slenderman does the opposite by creating a set of folklore-like narratives where none existed before. It is an iconic figure produced through a collective effort and deliberately modeled after an existing and familiar folklore genre. According to Tolbert, this represents two processes in one. It involves the creation of new objects and new disconnected examples of experience, and it involves a combination of these elements into a body of traditional narratives modeled on existing folklore, but not wholly indebted to any specific tradition. Professor Thomas Pettit of the University of Southern Denmark has described the Slenderman as being an exemplar of the modern age's closing of the Gutenberg parenthesis. The time period from the invention of the printing press to the spread of the web in which stories and information were codified in discrete media to return to the older, more primal forms of storytelling, exemplified by oral tradition and campfire tales, in which the story can be retold, reinterpreted, and recast by different tellers, allowing the lore to expand and evolve with time. I hope you enjoyed, and I hope that you're asleep. Hi, I'm Veronica, and I'll be your sleep guide tonight. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at deadasleeppod. And if you like this podcast, check out The Curse Cafe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
Let's begin by taking a deep breath and then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. And as you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs. And let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. One more deep breath and we're ready to begin. Krampus. The Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure in Central and Eastern Alpine folklore who, during the Christmas season, scares children who have misbehaved. Assisting St. Nicholas, the pair visit children on the night of the 5th of December, with St. Nicholas rewarding the well-behaved children with modest gifts such as oranges, dried fruit, walnuts, and chocolate, whilst the badly behaved ones only receive punishment from Krampus with birch rods. The origin of the figure is unclear. Some folklorists and anthropologists have postulated it as being pre-Christian origins. In traditional parades and in such events as the Krampuslauf, which in English translates to Krampus run, young men participate dressed as Krampus and attempt to scare the audience with their antics. Such events occur annually in most Alpine towns. Krampus is featured on holiday greeting cards called Krampus Carton. Since 2013, the character has become better known globally, having been portrayed in Hollywood horror films. Almost unknown before this time, Krampus has begun to become a part of American popular culture. The history of the Krampus figure has been theorized as stretching back to pre-Christian Alpine traditions. Discussing his observations in 1975, while in Erdning, a small town in Styria, anthropologist John J. Honigman wrote that, the St. Nicholas Festival we are describing incorporates cultural elements widely distributed in Europe, in some cases going back to pre-Christian times. Nicholas himself became popular in Germany around the 11th century. The feast dedicated to this patron of children is the only winter occasion in which children are the objects of special attention, others being Martinmas, the Feast of the Holy Innocents, and New Year's Day. Masked devils acting boisterously and making nuisances of themselves are known in Germany since at least the 16th century, while animal masked devils combining dreadful comic antics appeared in medieval church plays. A large literature, much of it European folklorists, bears on these subjects. Austrians in the community we studied are quite aware of the heathen elements being blended with Christian elements in the St. Nicholas customs and in other traditional winter ceremonies. They believe Krampus derives from a pagan supernatural who is assimilated to the Christian devil. The Krampus figures persisted, and by the 17th century, Krampus had been incorporated into Christian winter celebrations by pairing Krampus with St. Nicholas. 
In the aftermath of the 1932 election in Austria, the Krampus tradition was prohibited by the Dolphus regime under the clerical fascist Fatherland's Front and the Christian Social Party. In the 1950s, the government distributed pamphlets titled Krampus is an Evil Man. Towards the end of the century, a popular resurgence of Krampus celebrations occurred and continues today. The Krampus tradition is being revived in Bavaria as well, along with a local artistic tradition of hand-carved wooden masks. In 2019, there were reports of drunken or disorderly conduct by masked Krampuses in some Austrian towns. Although Krampus appears in many variations, most share some common physical characteristics. He is hairy, usually brown or black, and has the cloven hooves and horns of a goat. His long pointed tongue lolls out and he has fangs. Krampus carries chains thought to symbolize the binding of the devil by the Christian church. He thrashes the chains for dramatic effect. The chains are sometimes accompanied with bells of various sizes. Of more pagan origins are the rutin, bundles of birch branches that Krampus carries and which he occasionally swatch children. The rutin may have had significance in pre-Christian pagan initiation rites. The birch branches are replaced with a whip and some representations. Sometimes Krampus appears with a sack or a basket strapped to his back. This is to cart off evil children for drowning, eating, or transport to hell. Some of the older versions make mention of naughty children being put in the bag and taken away. This quality can be found in other companions of St. Nicholas. The Feast of St. Nicholas is celebrated in parts of Europe on December 6. On the preceding evening of December 5th, Krampus Night or Krampus Knot, the wicked hairy devil appears on the streets. Sometimes accompanying St. Nicholas and sometimes on his own, Krampus visits homes and businesses. The saint usually appears in the eastern right vestments of a bishop, and he carries a golden ceremonial staff. Unlike North American versions of Santa Claus, in these celebrations, St. Nicholas concerns himself only with the good children. While Krampus is responsible for the bad, Nicholas dispenses gifts while Krampus supplies coal and the rooting bundles. A seasonal play that spread throughout the Alpine regions known as the Nicholas Spiel, inspired by Paradise Plays, which focused on Adam and Eve's encounter with the tempter, the Nicholas Plays featured competition for the human souls and played on the question of morality. In these Nicholas Plays, St. Nicholas would reward children for scholarly efforts rather than for good behavior. This is a theme that grew in Alpine regions where the Roman Catholic Church has significant influence. There were already established pagan traditions in the Alpine regions that became intertwined with Catholicism. People would masquerade as a devilish figure known as Perked, a two-legged humanoid goat with a giraffe-like neck wearing animal furs. People wore costumes and marched in processions known as Perktenlaufen which are regarded as an earlier form of the Krampus runs. Perktenlaufen were looked at with suspicion by the Catholic Church and banned by some civil authorities. Due to sparse population and rugged environments within the Alpine region, the ban was not effective 
or easily enforce, rendering the ban useless. Eventually, the Perkton Lawfen, inspired by the Nicholas plays, introduced St. Nicholas and his set of good morals. The perk transformed into what is now known as the Krampus and was made to be the subject of St. Nicholas's will. It is customary to offer a Krampus schnapps, a strong distilled fruit brandy. These runs may include Perkton, similarly wild pagan spirits of dramatic folklore, and sometimes female in representation, although the Perkton are properly associated with the period between winter solstice and January 6. Europeans have been exchanging greeting cards featuring Krampus since the 19th century, sometimes introduced with Grub vom Krampus, greetings from Krampus. The cards usually have humorous rhymes and poems. Krampus is often featured looming menacingly over children. He is also shown as having one human foot and one cloven foot. And some Krampus has sexual overtones. He is pictured pursuing buxom women. Over time, the representation of Krampus in the cards has changed. Older versions have a more frightening Krampus, while modern versions have a cuter, more Cupid-like creature. Krampus has also adorned postcards and candy containers. In Styria, the Rutan bundles are presented by Krampus to families. The twigs are painted gold and displayed year-round in the house, a reminder to any children who has temporarily forgotten Krampus. In similar, more isolated villages, the figure has other beastly companions, such as the antlered wild man figures, and St. Nicholas is nowhere to be seen. These Styrian companions of Krampus are called Shabmaner or Rowan. A toned-down version of Krampus is part of the popular Christmas markets in Austrian urban centers like Salzburg. In these more tourist-friendly interpretations, Krampus is more humorous than fearsome. North American Krampus celebrations are a growing phenomenon. Similar figures are reported in neighboring areas, Klaubauf, Austria, or Bartel, or Bartel, Niglo Bartel, and Wu Bartel are used in the southern part of the country. In most parts of Slovenia, whose culture was greatly affected by Austrian culture, Krampus is called Parkelj and is one of the companions of Miklov and the Slovenian form of St. Nicholas. In many parts of Croatia, Krampus is described as a devil wearing a cloth sack around his waist and chains around his neck, ankles, and wrists. As a part of a tradition, when a child receives a gift from St. Nicholas, he is given a golden branch to represent his good deeds throughout the year. However, if the child has misbehaved, Krampus will take the gifts for himself and leave only a silver branch to represent the child's bad acts. The character of Krampus has been imported and modified for various North American media, including print, Krampus the Devil of Christmas, a collection of vintage postcards by Monty Beauchamp in 2004, Krampus the Yule Lord, a 2012 novel by Gerald Braun, television, both live action, A Krampus Carol, a 2012 episode of The League, and animation, A Very Venture Christmas, a 2004 episode of The Venture Brothers. 
the Krampus film. Krampus is a 2015 American Christmas horror comedy film based on the eponymous character from Austro-Bavarian folklore, directed by Michael Doherty and written by Doherty, Todd Casey, and Zach Shields. The film stars Adam Scott, Tony Collette, David Kochner, Allison Tolman, Contrada Farrell, MJ Anthony, Stefania Levy Owen, and Krista Statler. In introducing Lolo Owen, Queenie Samuel, Maverick Flat, and Sage Hoonfeld. In the film, a dysfunctional family squabbling causes a young boy to lose his festive spirit. Doing so unleashes the wrath of Krampus, a fearsome horned demonic beast in the ancient European folklore who punishes naughty children at Christmas time. As Krampus lays siege to the neighborhood, the family must band together to save one another from a monstrous fate. The concept of Krampus began in 2011 when Doherty was planning to make a Christmas-themed horror film with him and Schultz writing the screenplay. Production on the film began in 2014 with Doherty directing and writing a new screenplay with Shields and Casey. The casting call began from November 2014 to March 2015. Principal photography on the film began on March 12th and wrapped in May 2015. Creature effects were made by Weta Workshop. Krampus was released in the United States on December 4, 2015 by Universal Pictures. It received mixed to positive reviews with many critics praising Scott and Colette's performances, the horror elements, and humor, while its tone, pacing, and final twist ending received criticism. The film grossed over $61 million against a $15 million budget. Three days before Christmas, the prosperous but dysfunctional Engel family gather for the holidays. Max Engel remains a firm believer in Santa Claus and intends to send him a letter. His family includes his teenage sister, Beth, their parents, Tom and Sarah, and Tom's mother, whom the family calls Omi, who speaks mostly German. Sarah's side of the family visiting for Christmas include Aunt Linda and Uncle Howard, Sarah and Linda's cantankerous Aunt Dorothy, and Linda and Howard's children, Howie Jr., Stevie, Jordan, and baby Chrissy, as well as their bulldog, Rosie. Max wants to continue family traditions, but tensions among his relatives saps their Christmas spirit. When his cousins read out his letter to Santa and mock him for still believing, he fights with them and yells out that he hates his family and even Christmas. His father comforts him by telling him that even though there is chaos during the holidays, he should always love his family, and he gives him his letter to Santa. In a fit of anger, Max tears up the letter and throws it to the wind outside, and it's swept up into the sky. Later that night, a severe blizzard engulfs the town, causing a power outage. When Beth ventures out to check on her boyfriend, a large horned creature chases her. She hides beneath a delivery truck, but then the creature leaves a jack-in-the-box which attacks and captures her. Tom and Howard leave to search for Beth. They find her boyfriend's house in ruins with the chimney split open and large goat-like hoof prints in the house. Outside, the two are attacked by an unseen monster under the snow. They return home and board up the windows. 
Later, a large hook with a living gingerbread man attached lures Howie Jr. to the chimney, and he is dragged up the chimney despite the family's efforts to save him. Meanwhile, a fire log is inadvertently kicked aside during their struggle to save Howie, setting the tree in presence ablaze. Omi explains that the creature hunting them is Krampus, an ancient demonic spirit who punishes those who have lost the Christmas spirit. Omi recounts that when she was a child, her parents in the community lost her spirit due to the hardships of the war in Europe, as did she, which summoned Krampus. He dragged everyone except her to hell, leaving behind a bell bobble with his name on it. The family remained skeptical until monstrous toys hidden in presents delivered earlier invade the house. While upstairs, Stevie and Jordan are lured to the attic by Beth's voice. Meanwhile, downstairs, the adults hear them screaming. Tom, Sarah, and Linda go up to investigate, only to find Jordan being swallowed whole by Dirk Clown, the jack-in-the-box from before. The family fends off the toys and the gingerbread men, but Krampus's elves leap in through a window, taking Dorothy and Chrissy. Howard, desperate to get his kids back, jumps on Dare Clown's back and then disappears after. Tom decides that the family should flee to an abandoned snowplow on the streets outside. Omi stays behind to distract Krampus, who emerges from the fireplace and attacks her with his bag of toys. Outside, Tom, Sarah, and Linda are dragged under the snow while Stevie is captured by the elves. Krampus confronts Max and gives him a bell bobble wrapped in a piece of his discarded letter. Realizing that tearing up the letter was what summoned Krampus there in the first place, Max chases after the demon, catching up after Stevie was tossed into a hole leading into the hell by the elves. Max honestly apologizes for losing his spirit, and although Krampus seems to accept his apology, he still tosses Matt into the pit. Max awakens in his house on Christmas morning. Discovering his family alive and well downstairs, he thinks that what happened was just a nightmare. However, he unwraps a present to reveal Krampus's bauble, leaving the family with an ominous look on their faces as their memories of the horrific events slowly come back to them. The camera pans out, revealing that the family is being watched through the snow globe by Krampus, along with hundreds of others in his collection. Doherty had always wanted to do a scary Christmas movie, but the idea did not take form until his friend sent him an e-card featuring the Krampus creature, which was, according to him, just love at first sight. Although this, according to Doherty, happened in the ancient times of the internet, the project would not be fleshed out until 2011, at which point he would team up with Zach Shills and Todd Casey to figure out the story. The film was originally scheduled a release date for November 25th, 2015, but was moved to December 4th, 2015. The film was released on DVD and Blu-ray on April 26, 2016, and was internationally released on the same formats in the United Kingdom on December 26, 2016. An unrated extended version of the film referred to as Krampus, The Naughty Cut, was released on December 7th, 2021 by Shout Factory in a 4K Blu-ray combo pack. This release features new bonus content such as interviews, commentaries, and featurettes 
and runs approximately four minutes longer than the original theatrical version. Krampus grossed $42.7 million in the United States and Canada and $18.8 million in other territories for a worldwide total of $61.5 million against a budget of $15 million. In North America, Krampus earned $637,000 from its Thursday night showings, which began at 7 p.m. and topped the box office on its opening day with $6 million. It rose 9.9% on Saturday over Friday, a rare occurrence for a horror film. Scott Mendelson of Forbes felt the successful opening was attributed to the horror genre, which is something of a new, unique, and genuinely different offering at the time. The last time a Christmas-themed horror film opened was in 2006 with Black Christmas. However, he also stated that had Universal not embargoed the reviews two days prior to its release, a wave of mostly positive reviews dropping a few days before release would have boosted its opening accordingly. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you're fast asleep. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dead Asleep Pod and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Sweet dreams. <laughs>